Chapter Ten of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Three, Mary Stuart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, Volume Three, Mary Stuart, by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter Ten. Two hours after the execution, the body and the head were taken into the same hall in which Mary Stuart had appeared before the commissioners set down on a table round which the judges had sat and covered over with a black serge cloth and there remained till three o'clock in the afternoon when waters the doctor from stamford and the surgeon from fungi village came to open and embalm them an operation which they carried out under the eyes of armaeus paulet and his soldiers without any respect for the rank and sex of the poor corpse which was thus exposed to the view of any one who wanted to see it it is true that this indignity did not fulfil its proposed aim for a rumour spread about that the queen had swollen limbs and was dropsical while on the contrary there was not one of the spectators but was obliged to confess that he had never seen the body of a young girl in the bloom of health purer and lovelier than that of mary stuart dead of a violent death after nineteen years of suffering and captivity when the body was opened the spleen was in its normal state the veins a little livid only the lungs a little yellowish in places, and the brain one-sixth larger than is usual in persons of the same age and sex. Thus everything promised a long life to her whose end had just been so cruelly hastened. A report having been made of the above, the body was embalmed after a fashion, put in a leaden coffin, and that in another of wood, which was left on the table till the first day of August, that is, for nearly five months, before anyone was allowed to come near it, and not only that, for the English, having noticed that Mary Stuart's unhappy servants, who were still detained as prisoners, went to look at it through the keyhole, stopped that up in such a way that they could not even gaze at the coffin enclosing the body of her whom they had so greatly loved. However, one hour after Mary Stuart's death, Henry Talbot, who had been present at it, set out at full speed for London, carrying to Elizabeth the account of her rival's death but at the very first line she read, Elizabeth, true to her character, cried out in grief and indignation, saying that her orders had been misunderstood, that there had been too great haste, and that all this was the fault of Davison, the Secretary of State, to whom she had given the warrant to keep till she had made up her mind, but not to send to Fungi. Accordingly, Davison was sent to the Tower and condemned to pay a fine of ten thousand pounds sterling for having deceived the Queen. Meanwhile, Amid all this grief, an embargo was laid on all vessels in all the ports of the realm, so that the news of the death should not reach abroad, especially France, except through the skilful emissaries, who could place the execution in the least unfavourable light for Elizabeth. At the same time, the scandalous popular festivities which had marked the announcement of the sentence again celebrated the tidings of the execution. London was illuminated bonfires lit and the enthusiasm was such that the french embassy was broken into and wood taken to revive the fires when they began to die down crestfallen at this event monsieur de chateauneuf was shut up at the embassy when a fortnight later he received an invitation from elizabeth to visit her at the country house of the archbishop of canterbury monsieur de chateauneuf went thither with the firm resolve to say no word to her on what had happened but as soon as she saw him, Elizabeth, dressed in black, rose, went to him, and, overwhelming him with kind attentions, 
told him that she was ready to place all the strength of her kingdom at Henry III's disposal to help him put down the League. Chateauneuf received all these offers with a cold and severe expression, without saying, as he had promised himself, a single word about the event which had put both the Queen and himself into mourning. But, taking him by the hand, she drew him aside, and there, with deep sighs, said, "'Ah, sir, since I saw you, the great misfortune which could befall me has happened. I mean the death of my good sister, the Queen of Scotland, of whom I swear by God himself, my soul and my salvation, that I am perfectly innocent. I had signed the order, it is true, but my counsellors have played me a trick for which I cannot calm myself, and I swear to God that if it were not for their long service I would have them beheaded. I have a woman's frame, sir, but in this woman's frame beats a man's heart. Chateauneuf bowed without a response, but his letter to Henry Third and Henry's answer proved that neither the one nor the other was the dupe of this female, Tiberius. Meanwhile, as we have said, the unfortunate servants were prisoners, and the poor body was in that great hall waiting for a royal interment. Things remained thus, Elizabeth said, to give her time to order a splendid funeral for her good sister Mary, but in reality the Queen dared not place in juxtaposition the secret and infamous death and the public and royal burial. Then there was not time needed for the first reports which it pleased Elizabeth to spread to be credited before the truth should be known by the mouths of the servants for the Queen hoped that once this careless world had made up its mind about the death of the Queen of Scots, it would not take any further trouble to change it. Finally, it was only when the warders were as tired as the prisoners that Elizabeth, having received a report stating that the ill-embalmed body could no longer be kept, at last ordered the funeral to take place. Accordingly, after the 1st of August, tailors and dressmakers arrived at Fungi Castle, sent by Elizabeth with cloth and black silk stuffs, clothe in mourning all Mary's servants. But they refused, not having waited for the Queen of England's bounty, but having made their funeral garments at their own expense, immediately after their mistress's death. The tailors and dressmakers, however, none the less set so actively to work that on the seventh everything was finished. Next day, at eight o'clock in the evening, a large chariot, drawn by four horses in mourning trappings, and covered with black velvet like the chariot, which was, besides, adorned with little streamers on which were embroidered the arms of Scotland, those of the Queen, and the arms of Aragon, those of Darnley, stopped at the gate of Fungi Castle. It was followed by the Herald King, accompanied by twenty gentlemen on horseback, with their servants and lackeys, all dressed in mourning, who, having alighted, mounted with his whole train into the room where the body lay, and had it brought down and put into the chariot with all possible respect each of the spectators standing with bared head and in profound silence. This visit caused a great stir among the prisoners, who debated a while whether they ought not to implore the favour of being allowed to follow their mistress's body, which they could not and should not let go alone thus, but just as they were about to ask permission to speak to the Herald King, he entered the room where they were assembled, and told them that he was charged by his mistress, the August Queen of England, to give the Queen of Scotland the most honourable funeral he could, that, not wishing to fail in such a high undertaking, he had already made most of the preparations for the ceremony, which was to take place on the 10th of August, that is to say, two days later, but that the leaden shell in which the body was enclosed being very heavy, it was better to move it beforehand, and that night to where the grave was dug, than to await the day of the interment itself, that thus they might be easy, 
this burial of the shell being only a preparatory ceremony, but that if some of them would like to accompany the corpse, to see what was done with it, they are at liberty, and that those who stayed behind could follow the funeral pageant. Elizabeth's positive desire being that all, from first to last, should be present at the funeral procession. This assurance calmed the unfortunate prisoners, who deputed Bourgoin, Gervais, and six others to follow their mistress's body, and these were Andrew Melville, Stuart, Gourjoin, Howard, Lauder, and Nicholas Dunamar. At ten o'clock at night they set out, walking behind the chariot, preceded by the heralds, accompanied by men on foot, who carried torches to light the way, and followed by twenty gentlemen and their servants. In this manner, at two o'clock in the morning, they reached Peterborough, where there was a splendid cathedral built by an ancient Saxon king, and in which, on the left of the choir, was already interred good Queen Catherine of Aragon, wife of Henry VIII, and where her tomb still decked with a canopy bearing her arms. On arriving, they found the cathedral all hung with black, with a dome erected in the middle of the choir, much in the way in which the Chapelle Ardente are set up in France, except that there were no lighted candles round it. This dome was covered with black velvet, and overlaid with the arms of Scotland and Aragon, with streamers like those on the chariot yet again repeated. The state coffin was already set up under this dome. It was a bier, covered like the rest, in black velvet fringed with silver, on which was a pillow of the same supporting a royal crown. To the right of this dome, and in front of the burial place of the Queen and Catherine of Aragon, Mary of Scotland's sepulchre had been dug, it was a grave of brick, arranged to be covered later with a slab or a marble tomb, and in which was to be deposited the coffin, which the Bishop of Peterborough, in his episcopal robes, but without his metre, cross or cope, was awaiting at the door, accompanied by his dean and several other clergy. The body was brought into the cathedral, without chant or prayer, and was let down into the tomb amid a profound silence. Directly it was placed there, the masons, who had stayed their hands, set to work again, closing the grave level with the floor, and only leaving an opening of about a foot and a half, through which could be seen what was within, and through which could be thrown on the coffin, as is customary at the obsequies of kings, the broken staves of the officers, and the ensigns and banners with their arms. This nocturnal ceremony ended, Melville, Bourgoin, and the other deputies were taken to the bishop's palace, where the persons appointed to take part in the funeral procession were to assemble, in number more than three hundred and fifty, all chosen, with the exception of the servants, from among the authorities, the nobility, and the Protestant clergy. The day following, Thursday, August the ninth, they began to hang the banqueting halls with rich sumptuous stuffs, and that in the sight of Melville, Bourgoin, and the others, whom they had brought thither, less to be present at the interment of Queen Mary than to bear witness to the magnificence of Queen Elizabeth. But, as one may suppose, the unhappy prisoners were indifferent to this splendour, great and extraordinary as it was. On Friday, August the 10th, all the chosen persons assembled at the bishop's palace. They arranged themselves in the appointed order, and turned their steps to the cathedral, which was close by. When they arrived there, they took the places assigned them in the choir, and the choristers immediately began to chant a funeral service in English and according to Protestant rites. At the first words of this service, when he saw it was not conducted by Catholic priests, Bourgoin left the cathedral, declaring he would not be present at such sacrilege, and he was followed by all Mary's servants, 
men and women, except Melville and Barb Mowbray, who thought that whatever the tongue in which one prayed, that tongue was heard by the Lord. This exit created a great scandal, but the bishop preached none the less. The sermon ended. The herald king went to seek Bourgois and his companions, who were walking in the cloisters, and told them that the almsgiving was about to begin, inviting them to take part in this ceremony, but they replied that being Catholics they could not make offerings at an altar of which they disapproved. So the herald king returned, much put out at the harmony of the assembly being disturbed by this dissent, for the alms-offering took place no less than the sermon. Then, as a last attempt, he sent to them again, to tell them that the service was quite over, and that accordingly they might return for the royal ceremonies, which belonged only to the religion of the dead, and this time they consented. But when they arrived, the staves were broken, and the banners thrown into the grave through the opening that the workmen had already closed. Then, in the same order in which he had come, the procession returned to the palace, where a splendid funeral repast had been prepared. By a strange contradiction, Elizabeth, who, having punished the living woman as a criminal, had just treated the dead woman as a queen, had also wished that the honours of the funeral banquet should be for the servants, so long forgotten by her. But, as one can imagine, these ill-accommodated themselves to that intention, but did not seem astonished at this luxury, nor rejoiced at this good cheer, but, on the contrary, drowned their bread and wine in tears, without otherwise responding to the questions put to them or the honours granted them. And, as soon as the repast was ended, the poor servants left Peterborough and took the road back to Fungi, where they heard that they were free at last to withdraw whither they would. They did not need to be told twice, for they lived in perpetual fear, not considering their lives safe so long as they remained in England. They therefore immediately collected all their belongings, each taking his own, and thus went out of the Fungi Castle on foot, Monday, 13th of August, 1587. Bourgoin went last. Having reached the farther side of the drawbridge, he turned, and, Christian as he was, unable to forgive Elizabeth, not for his own sufferings, but for his mistresses, he faced about to those regicide walls, and, with hands outstretched to them, said in a loud and threatening voice those words of David, Let thy vengeance for the blood of thy servants, which have been shed, O Lord God, be acceptable in thy sight. The old man's curse was heard, and inflexible history is burdened with Elizabeth's punishment. We said that the executioner's acts in striking Mary Stuart's head had caused the crucifix and the book of hours in which she was holding to fly from her hands. We are also said that the two relics had been picked up by people in her following. We are not aware of what became of the crucifix, but the book of hours is in the Royal Library, where those curious about these kinds of historical souvenirs can see it. Two certificates inscribed on one of the blank leaves of the volume demonstrate its authenticity. These are they. First certificate. We, the undersigned vicar superior of the strict observance of the Order of Cluny, certify that this book has been entrusted to us by the order of the defunct Dom Michael Nardin, a professed religious priest of our said observance, deceased in our college of St. Martial of Avignon, March 28, 1723, aged about eighty years, of which he has spent about thirty among us, having lived very religiously. He was a German by birth, and had served as an officer in the army a long time. He entered Cluny, and made his profession there, much detached from all this world's goods and honours. He only kept, with his superior's permission, this book, 
which he knew had been in use with Mary Stuart, Queen of England and Scotland, to the end of her life. Before dying, and being parted from his brethren, he requested that, to be safely remitted to us, it should be sent us by mail, sealed. Just as we have received it, we begged Monsieur La Bignon, Councillor of State and King's Librarian, to accept this precious relic of the piety of a Queen of England, and of a German officer of her religion, as well as ours, signed, Brother Gerard Ponce, Vicar General Superior. Second Certificate We, Jean-Paul Bignon, King's Librarian, are very happy to have an opportunity of exhibiting our zeal in placing the said manuscript in His Majesty's Library, 8th July, 1724. Signed, Jean-Paul This manuscript, on which was fixed the last gaze of Queen of Scotland, is a duodecimo, written in the Gothic character and containing Latin prayers. It is adorned with miniatures set off with gold, representing devotional subjects, stories from sacred history, or from the lives of saints and martyrs. Every page is encircled with arabesques mingled with garlands of fruit and flowers, amid which spring up grotesque figures of men and animals. As to the binding, worn now, perhaps even then, to the woof, it is in black velvet, of which the flat covers are adorned in the centre with an enamelled pansy, in a silver setting surrounded by a wreath, to which are diagonally attached from one corner of the cover to the other two twisted silver gilt knotted cords finished by a tuft at the two ends end of chapter ten end of celebrated crimes volume three mary stuart by alexandre dumas